0: Hello,
1: and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm
2: Garrett Vandermeer.
1: And I'm Jim Elliott. And today, we're especially delighted to be joined by Scott Kaiser. Hello, Scott Kaiser.
2: Hello, gentlemen. How are you?
1: Hey, Scott. Very good. It's good to see you again.
2: It's great to be back on.
1: Our longtime and loyal listeners may remember that we had Scott on the program five years ago. Over five years ago now, and Scott is, in fact, our very first repeat interviewee. Scott is a nationally recognized master teacher of acting and voice, as well as a director, playwright, and author. For 28 seasons, Scott served as a member of the artistic staff at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, where he directed, adapted, coached, or performed in all 38 of Shakespeare's plays, which is very impressive, by the way, the entire canon.
2: The, the entire canon, and, and many of them... Um, more than once, uh, the the comedies, of course, I've done three, four, five, uh-huh, cou- yeah. countless times. Yeah. But 28
1: years at Ashland, they, they they must not have been able to figure out a way of getting rid of you. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was a it was a long run, and uh, I was a, a very uh, very happy to be there for 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 really the the lion's share of my career.
1: You're also a, a quite a prolific author. You're the author of more than a dozen books on Shakespeare, including Albert's Adventures in Willy World, which is soon to be released or just recently released
2: it's out it's definitely out and available
1: and in addition to albert's adventures in willy world which we will talk about in a moment the dow of shakespeare shakespeare's wordcraft and mastering shakespeare and acting class in seven scenes as well as many others he's also penned several original plays including falstaff in love loves labors one and shakespeare's other women a new anthology of monologues that is quite a creative output scott kaiser yes.
2: I am um, writing's a bit of an obsession with me it, uh, and uh, I do it every day and uh, and uh, it just sort of keeps me stable and and creative, especially now during the pandemic. I've been writing a lot because there's so much time. Well,
1: yeah. let me throw a wrench in the works and just ask you about something completely out of order. But as, as a teacher who's always looking for great monologues, especially sh- classical monologues for women, tell 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 me about Shakespeare's Other Women, in new anthology of monologues.
2: Well, that's exactly why I wrote the um, that play, because, uh, you know, as a teacher, so often young women would come to me and say, well, what's a good monologue that, you know, that they've never heard before for an audition that they don't know? And of course the answer is, well, there's, there's very few monologues in Shakespeare for women that, um, and they're all done, they're all overdone. So um, in response to that complaint from young women, I set out to write monologues from the periphery of the canon. Um, characters that uh, you hear about but don't see or characters that are secondary but don't have a big speech. Uh, characters from mythology, characters from history. So I wrote 36 uh, separate speeches. Most of them are inverse and they all adhere very strictly to Shakespeare's uh, vocabulary. Uh, it all comes from his canon. Um, I used his rhetoric and of course I used his meter um, for that project. And then I, I, I framed them with a device, which is um, Hemings and Condell are finishing up the, um, yeah. the first folio in 1623. And um, just before they go to the pub to celebrate, there's this box of scraps Um, and they open it up and take a look at it. It turns out that it's all the female monologues that got cut out of the first folio. I love that. So they don't know what to do with those speeches. So they go through them and like, oh, do you remember this one? Or why did he cut that? And oh, well, it was getting too long or every single speech is prefaced with Hemmings and Cundall talking about the play it's from. And
1: uh, have you heard from any um, actors who have used these monologues with success in auditions?
2: The, the thing I mainly hear from, from young women is, is it okay to do this if they ask for a, uh, a Shakespeare monologue? And what I've said is, if they ask for a classical monologue, then probably you can, because these are all classical characters, and they are in verse, and they're all all of period. If they specifically ask for a Shakespeare monologue, maybe not. Although I have heard from young women who have done them, and they're like, where did you find that? What What is that? Right, right. <laughs> um, so... That's why the subtitle is a a new anthology of monologues, because uh, it doubles as both a play and a monologue book. And I wanted the title to reflect that. Some people find that confusing, but uh, I wanted to make sure that the title somehow reflected that it has two purposes and... Um, right. And so that's why that's that way. Well, yeah. they,
1: they could preface it by, by simply saying, w- would you care for a monologue by Shakespeare, Marlowe or Kaiser? And, and, then, <laughs>
2: and, then they, and then
0: they could just launch into it. And... So the last time we talked to you, you had just finished the Tao of Shakespeare and we talked a lot about Shakespeare's wordplay. Um, And your most current one is Albert's adventures in Willy world. What's it about?
2: Uh, Well, it's a satire on the Shakespeare industry. And when I write out Shakespeare industry, I always capitalize that because I really do believe uh, that that it is an industry. Um, inspired by my 28 seasons at, um, at OSF. It's not a tell-all, but uh, it, it is very much inspired by the people I met and situations I was in and just sort of the general uh, absurdity of, of a lifetime uh, working on Shakespeare uh, with other creative souls. Uh, and those of us who have worked in Shakespeare festivals uh, will, will immediately recognize those types.
0: Are they archetypes or are they based on certain well-known...
2: Well, there there are fight directors and vocal coaches and uh, um, you know, development directors uh, taking care of wealthy <laughs> patrons and all the, uh, all the assistants and assistant assistants that he encounters along the way because anybody who's actually in charge is on on the road on tour at a conference. So Albert rarely meets anybody who has any authority <laughs> ever <laughs> uh, because they're all out uh, on the road somewhere. Right. So uh, that's, that's part of the fun of it. So all of the people you would generally meet actors, of course, dramaturgs, of course, um, Albert meets along the way. And um, being a non feeder person and a non-Shakespeare person, he he doesn't always understand um, what he's being told by these folks. So that's part of the fun. It really is uh, um, you know, his unfamiliarity with the world is a way of of showing how bizarre some of the things we do really are.
1: Do you have an excerpt to share with us?
2: Should I just launch in? Is that, uh, is that best, or do you, should I give a preface? What's best? Well, yeah,
0: you should give us some give us some background.
2: Well, at the moment, um, Albert Detective Albert Lewis is in the translation room because he found a clue somewhere, and it. um, he needed to have that clue translated so he's brought that clue to the translation room where uh they're working on various translations uh, of uh of Shakespeare into uh into Dothraki and <laughs> uh, and Na'vi um and uh into uh you know uh, various uh foreign languages uh, Klingon is another language that Shakespeare's being translated into uh so um the head of the um the head of the translation department is, is, has, brought, um, has brought Albert to a translator and uh, this is the dialogue that ensues. Uh, what's he working on? Oh, uh, he's translating Shakespeare into English. English, but that's odd. I mean, aren't the plays already written in English? Oh, yes, of course, but not plain English. English that anybody can understand. I'm not sure I follow you. Well, Dave's a bit of a genius at this. Let's ask for his help, shall we? Max tapped Dave on the shoulder saying, Dave, can we interrupt you for a minute? Dave took his earbuds out of his ears and looked up. This is Detective Lewis Dave. He's investigating the death of the director. He'd like to hear a few translations into plain English, if you don't mind. Not at all, said Dave enthusiastically. What would you like me to translate? Let's see, said Max, stroking his chin. How about another line from Hamlet, like, The lady doth protest too much, methinks. Easy, said Dave. In plain English, that would be, Man, that bitch just won't stop complaining. See how much clearer that is, Max said to Albert. Wow, yes, replied Albert. I can certainly hear the difference. Oh, good, said Max with pleasure. Let's do another one. Just give me a line, said Dave cooperatively. Okay, so how about the beginning of the Merchant of Venice when Antonio says, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. Simple, said Dave. In plain English, that would be, yo, what can I say, I'm just bummed, you know? Perfectly clear, yes, Max said to Albert. Crystal, Albert replied. One more, said Max. Absolutely, said Albert, enjoying the game. How about the beginning of Twelfth Night, said Max, when Count Orsino says, if music be the food of love, play on. Translated, said Dave. That would be, if hip-hop can stiffen my love muscle, spin that shit. Amazing, said Albert. I understood every word. You see, said Max, no more struggling to understand the bard. The meaning is well within the grasp of anyone who speaks English, especially teenagers. Are you concerned at all that some of the poetry will be lost in translation? Perhaps, but it's a small price to pay to make the bard's immortal words available to everyone, even if they're not his words. Exactly. <laughs>
0: So, um, Garrett brought up an interesting question. When you say Dave is the translator, is that any uh, reference to Mr. Dave Hitz who started the Play On project?
2: (laughs) Well, my character's name is Dave Dumbwaiter. My Dave Dumbwaiter has the name Dave just, I would say, you could say as an homage to Dave Hitz. Um, I've never met him personally. I certainly know of his project and and, uh, that's obviously what I'm up to here, yeah.
0: So, um, without going too deep into the play on project, but um, the translations—it's—it's a, it's a really interesting time for translations right now, I think. And is this a commentary on it, or is this just one of the many things that happens in the Shakespeare industry? <laughs>
2: um, well, I mean, one of the nice things about framing Shakespeare as an industry um, is, and is you can actually include and embrace a project like Dave Hitz without worrying too much about Shakespeare. Uh, Dave Hitz himself on your podcast said, um, it's just an addition to the Shakespeare landscape. And you know, I agree with that. I'm not all all up in arms the way I think some people are about the Play On project, about translations. Um, You know, Shakespeare, the the landscape is enormous and it can absorb Play On like everything else. Um, I mean, as you know, it, it absorbs so much so many other strange things, um, you know. People who want to ban him from the curriculum, and and you know, people who have belief in centuries-old conspiracies, and and first folio freaks, and original pronunciation geeks, and you know, the thousands and thousands of books and all the merchandising. I mean, um, so you know, Shakespeare's not going to wither and die because Dave Hitz is is you know producing translations. I, I'm not concerned about that, uh, really. Um, you know, the other thing about the hits project, especially in a Shakespeare industry concept, he's, he's basically redistributing his wealth to artists, especially now during the pandemic. That's great. And I, I understand Dave's, uh, thinking that they should be accessible. I get that. My thinking is this, that, you know, anyone moving to another art form, let's say, you know, anybody can walk up to an Andy Warhol soup can and immediately get it. It's like, oh, it's a soup can, I get it. Only now it's 12 feet tall, you know, and now it's in blue, it's not, you know, or you can walk up to a Jasper Johns in a museum and say, oh, it's a flag. Oh, it's three flags. So it's a flag shrinking or immediate understanding of the art, right? And you can, the the thing is great art, masterful works, Um, the Sistine Chapel, you know, Guernica, Um, The Garden of Earthly Delights by Bosch. You know, those works require some time and some patience and some effort. Masterworks, great art, I'm sorry, they just require some effort. So, you know, as as a gateway, as an entryway to Shakespeare, sure, play on, whatever. But, you know, my feeling is there really is no substitute whatsoever. Great art is challenging.
1: So your book... Albert's Adventures in Willy World takes on the Shakespeare industry, as you call it. And I think that's a great coinage. But let me ask you a question. Supposing you, and perhaps you do, and I don't know it, but supposing you had the ability to give, say, an eight-figure donation or investment into this industry, how would you direct your capital infusion?
2: What I would do, um, I, would, um, I would probably donate it to... Um, to OSF and earmarked the money to tear down the entire theater outdoors, the Elizabethan theater, and rebuild it as a true replica of the globe. I
1: would gather from that that you have some some reservations about the existing edifice.
2: <laughs> well, you have to know how far the, the history of that theater goes back. It was built as a Chautauqua space in the 1880s. The walls are still there. So it was always a place to go and listen. Um, And then the Elizabethan theater was built, Um, there were benches, and then that grew. In 92, they built the, um, they built the pavilion because it was supposed to help with acoustics. But uh, the fact is that theater has always been a Greek amphitheater. It is, it's not a Shakespearean theater, even though there's a big sign outside that says America's first Shakespearean theater, that is not what it is. Um, So when they built the Globe, uh, when Sam Wanamaker built the Globe, uh, you know, uh, in uh, in London, uh, it was revelatory. And uh, it it really highlights the problems with the festival spaces, with that outdoor space is really a Greek amphitheater. It is not conducive to Shakespeare at all. Um, the, uh, The front row of the balcony at OSF is outside the Globe Theater, if you actually measure it. It's literally not even in the Globe Theater. That's how far away the balcony is. The back of the balcony is so far away from that stage. That entire theater, I think, needs to be taken to the ground and rebuilt as a true Shakespearean theater um, with a true, uh, um, you know, wraparound theater um, that, that we can go back to um, the way Shakespeare intended the plays to be performed. Now, one of the things that happened under Bill Raush's uh, regime is audiences said, I can't hear the play, I can't hear the play. So Bill started to mic the shows. That made the problem much, much worse. Amplification of the actors only made the problem worse because now you got a bank of speakers, so you can't tell who's talking. So it's even more confusing. Um, and the other thing that happened is it enabled the festival to hire actors with, with a uh, less experience outside. So they didn't have the vocal chops or the vocal training. And so the, in my mind, the, the, uh, the ability to hear and understand the plays went down with miking with less experienced actors. The way to fix that is to tear the thing down and to build a theater where you can truly hear and understand the play uh, and because everybody is close and it's surrounded. And uh, if you've ever been to the Wanamaker space, uh, you you know just how wonderful the experience is there. So that's how I would spend my money.
0: I think that's great. It's an interesting thing about the chops. And I know that you're a man who loves uh, Shakespeare's wordplay and metaphors and images. And the rhetorical language in Shakespeare, to do that well requires training. Where does Shakespeare training, where does training like that, how does that translate into modern drama and even something like play on or another type of translation?
2: Oh wow, that's such a wonderful and layered and complex question. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, The thing is, I've been around long enough to know how training has changed. I mean, when I was in training, the fundamental work that we got was shakespeare that shakespeare was was the the skill And our master teacher always talked about if you can master Shakespeare, then you can do Ibsen, you could do Chekhov, you can do the tire commercial, you can do the Wendy Wasserstein, you can do anything because you have the vocal, physical chops to make very challenging language clear to an audience. So it became it was the foundation of everything we did, like like lifting weights. If you can lift the heavy weights, then the the little weights are easy. Um, And and that was the way training was arranged Um, and going all the way back to Juilliard and John Hausman um, and Michelle saint uh, If you look at that book written by Michelle saint that the Juilliard's training is based on, um, that you see that the classics were the foundation for everything and it enabled you to do movies, television, radio, TV commercials, everything. That is completely in my three, four decades completely turned upside down. Um, now we're training mostly for television and film, for camera work. And Shakespeare now is down at the level of special skills, you know, on a resume. And I know this because I auditioned thousands of actors during my 10 years of director of company development at the festival. And maybe I had a class written Shakespeare. Maybe we did one Shakespeare where we were in training. Um, It's harder and harder to find actors who are steeped in it the way... Um, you could in the '70s and '80s. Uh, actors just aren't steeped in it the way they used to be, um, and frankly, now with the current political climate, with so much of the pushback that training programs are getting now and and regional theaters are getting now, um, I think uh, Shakespeare and um, and the the Western you know European classics are going to be pushed further and further into the background. Um, and that means I think there'll be less Shakespeare training in, um, in training programs, uh, far less Shakespeare. I'm already beginning to see it. Uh, you can see it on Facebook every single day, the pushback. You know, why do we have to learn this? I've certainly heard from colleagues into are teaching and training programs, you know, the, the tremendous amount of pushback. We simply don't want this in the curriculum. We simply don't want it there um you know, we're not going to we're not going to be cast in these roles why are we spending time learning this stuff uh the question is where is shakespeare stand right now in training and in regional theater and i th- i think he's he's very much um i think he's very much being reevaluated and diminished right right now he may or may not come back we'll have to see
0: i think he's probably going to come back i mean i think he's weathered the storm for 400 years and my guess is that his plays are timeless, but who knows? I mean, it's, it's true. It's, it's an interesting time for Shakespeare and Shakespeare training. Scott, the, the, there's a slight correlation between translation and adaptation, and you have adapted a lot uh, of Shakespeare's um, works. We actually covered Love's Labour's 1 in our first interview, but you also have Falstaff in Love, um, Shakespeare's Other Women, which we just talked about, uh, as well as Have Shakespeare, Will Travel, Henry and Margaret, and also Talbot and Joan. So is there a difference between what you're doing with the adaptations and what translation might do?
2: My work falls into se- separate categories. I mean, Love's Labor's One uh, is, you know, is, is a sequel to Love's Labor's Lost, and I, I wrote it um the way i thought shakespeare might have written that sequel had we found it so again his vocabulary his meter his characters his rhetorical devices that i hear as closely as i could to the way shakespeare might have written it i tried to replicate his voice it's not my voice it's it's his voice i mean i came up with a story but the characters and those character arcs are continuations so um I, uh, and that's also true of Falstaff in Love. That's I wrote it as a prequel to the first part of Henry IV. So, and it, it adheres very strictly to the characters, to the, the, the English history, um, and all of those devices are meant to lead into uh, the first part of Henry IV as if Shakespeare had done what the queen had asked him to do, which is, hey, I'd love to see Falstaff in Love. Um, as you know, Mary Wives of Windsor does not do that. Uh, he's conning those two wives. What I did is create a very young, uh, you know, slim, uh, uh, naive Falstaff and I decided, you know, what would the young Falstaff, who would he have fallen in love with and what would that be like and how would that have played out? So uh, it takes place in the Boar's Head Tavern and it takes place in the palace. So that's not an adaptation. It's a a brand new play written in the manner of. um, I tend to call those things neo-Shakespearean. Neo-Shakespearean meaning it's a brand new play that written the way Shakespeare might have written it. Um, And uh, um, that's very different from my adaptations like uh, Talbot and Joan and Henry and Margaret. Those are the two parts of Henry VI. I was commissioned to take the three plays and turn them into two. Um, and this has been done you know going back decades, so it's not something new. Um, you know in that instance, I'm not really changing characters or plot or even the language. A lot of that is just like being a surgeon. It's like what characters what character arcs can I surgically remove? what events can I remove? Um, which? characters can I conflate and combine to make it smaller? But getting, you know, nine or 10 hours of Shakespeare's Henry VI into um, five or six hours, that that was my commission. So they are are absolutely adapted to fit into two theaters and to rotate very commonly done. Um, My intent was to really honor Shakespeare, though, and to not tinker with characters or arcs or story, but to really compress and condense as best I can without losing the story. Um, but when you get down to things like um, have Shakespeare with travel, and I also have many a short, um, I have four short classroom versions, That those are written um because I'm an educator and a teacher, um, Half Shakespeare Will Travel was inspired by the Oregon Shakespeare Festival School Visit Program where three actors get on the road and go to schools and they go to cafeterias and gymtoriums and they do three person Shakespeare plays for three people that have to fit into a class period of 40 minutes. So those adaptations are very much uh, meant for school situations, three actors, very short. They are highly compressed um, and they are made to be highly accessible without adding non-Shakespearean language. Those are not translations. They are highly compressed, um, abridged versions of Shakespeare's plays.
1: So Scott, knowing you and and your prolific output, what's coming up for you?
2: Um, well, I have, uh, one of the things I've been doing during pandemic is I've been writing, uh, a novel, um, the novel obviously has a theater setting, um, it takes place in a theater training conservatory, um, and the characters are composites of people that I've met and worked with, um, uh, I've invented a conservatory and uh, and placed it uh, in Boston, uh, a city that I know well because I grew up there and where there are other conservatories. So um, it's it's a place where training happens. Um, and uh, it, it's been so far been very, very gratifying and uh, is really consumed by creative uh, um, uh, brain space in a, in a really healthy way for me. Otherwise I'd be going crazy.
0: So, but I have a real quick question going back to, um, uh, Albert's adventures in Willy. World. <laughs> this and, is how, this is how interviews with Jim.
1: With Jim Burke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm steering the ship into
1: the port. <laughs> and Jim's was like will hoist all the sails. No, 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 no,
0: no, no. I, I, I I'm, I'm steering. I'm, I'm going to be with you. Don't worry. Don't worry. But what I want to know, so let's just, just the last question. Um, Scott about uh, Albert's Adventures in Willy World is you, again it takes place and it's talking about the Shakespeare industry, and I'm just wondering is there anything in the Shakespeare industry in Albert's and Willy World about podcasters?
2: <laughs> it's a it's a good question, but no, I didn't I didn't poke at, at, at you guys so. <laughs> <laughs> or any other podcasters for that matter. And mainly because, um, I think, because as Albert goes around Willy World, uh, um, there, there are no podcasters on site. Uh, uh, uh-huh. So I hope that's, that's a relief.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, if one wanted to get Albert's adventures in Willy World, where would they get it?
2: Log into Amazon and you'll, you'll see it there.
0: Terrific. Well, Scott, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for your deep, deep knowledge about all things Shakespeare and uh, your experience, your, you know, lifelong journey through it. Um, I, I think everybody should read your books because I'm sure they'll learn about not only the Shakespeare industry, but Shakespeare itself and um, performing it and the doing of it. So thank you for joining us a second time.
2: Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so grateful to be invited again. And, and, uh, and as I said, I'm very honored to be, to be your first repeat.
1: Thank you, Scott. Thank, thank you. you.
2: And thank you for
1: listening to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer.
0: And I'm Jim Elliott. See you next time. Well done,
1: sir. Well <laughs> you've done. done that to me. Um, I know.
0: <laughs> you've done that. I, I got it from you.
1: So, oh. Scott, before we let you go, I'm sure I mentioned this last time. I just want to mention it again, that how grateful I was to you for your book, Mastering Shakespeare. It was such a help to me the last time, and I've spent too many years now, that I went off to do a, a season you know, with a repertory company doing Shakespeare, <laughs> um, really. I, I'm I, so
2: pleased that that was useful to you. I mean, it uh, um, it's it's still in print, which is great. Uh, um, uh, I was just complaining with the publisher because they let it go out of hard copy, and you know, the publishers they don't want to print anymore because the the uh, the electronic profits are so it's so easy for them, and it's there's no expenses and it's really, really challenging now to get a theater book into print because there's—it's just they make so much more money, not printing them.
1: Right. You know? Well, I'm—I'm I'm with you. I—I I need to have books in hand. I'm old-fashioned. I like the, the—the electronic versions are are completely useless to me. Yeah. Whenever uh, I get an exam copy and it's electronic, I, I can't use it.
2: Feeder yeah. people, yeah, we want to hold it. We want to yeah. hold on to it. We want to write in it, you know. And it's odd that um, that a publisher of feeder books is like, well, why do I have to tell you this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I, I, think that, I mean, for me, the class, the new trend is uh, to be or not to oh, be. Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: that is the question. <laughs> whether you know they're reading the script off of the phone. Yes, yeah. yes. Although in classes I've used that to my advantage, which is you know, I've said I, I'm not asking you to bring your riverside into class, but you know, get get you know, get Shakespeare, get the get some version of the canon, you know, get your your Shakespeare app. Um, and have that, that glossary in the class the whole time, you know, and, mm. and look it up, look it up. So uh, there's an upside to having those apps in a classroom, yeah, which is I can say, so where's that quote from, or who said that, or uh, who else uses that word? You, know, you can actually use it as a tool and they'll whip out their phones and, mm. you know, and we'll make a race of it. Who got to it first, you know, kind of to hone their skills. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I've I slowly <laughs> found an upside to having the Shakespeare apps in, in classrooms.
0: Love that. I'll use yeah. it. I'm stealing it.
2: You know, they're not going to haul the Riverside. And, you know, like I did when I was, when I was, you know, 19. That's <laughs> right. right. That's right. <laughs> All three pounds of it, you know. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> uh, well, this has been a delight so much. Thank you, Scott. It's yep. such a pleasure talking to yeah. you. Thank you so much. What for a treat. Me. Yeah. All right. Good to see you. Good to yeah, see team, Thank you too, Jim. Yeah. Bye. Bye garrett yeah i'm sorry to to divert the end what of it what a this. great question i know but oh, i had it needed to, to happen. Happen. yeah I ha- of course you I did. had to ask that question yeah great um, <laughs> um, all right well you have a have a fantastic week thanks
1: Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.